Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 19, Rising from the Ashes. In the spring of 1945, as World War II was coming to a close, an economist named Okita Saburo went to visit a friend, an engineering professor at Tokyo Imperial University. The two men believed the war to already be lost, and took to discussing the future course of the Japanese nation. Okita's recollection was that, as American bombers flew overhead, certainly a nice dramatic touch, he expressed the belief to his friend that the lesson of the war was that, quote, Japan, poorly endowed with natural resources, must shape its future around precision engineering. Said friend agreed with him, recalling in his own diary that, quote, Okita made himself comfortable and we spoke for a long time. He did not think that a defeated Japan would be allowed to rearm at all but this would probably be a blessing in disguise. I completely agreed with what he said. I will actually be happy if rearmament is completely prohibited. An army in uniform is not the only sort of army. Scientific technology and fighting spirit under a business suit will be our underground army. Okita's vision of Japan's future was a compelling one, but when the American occupation ended on April 28, 1952, seven years after the fateful conversation, Japan was nowhere close to realizing it. Japan's economy had faltered badly after the war. Inflation was rampant, and food shortages caused starvation in some areas. In fact, one of the more enduring images of the occupation, the USGI with his Japanese girl on his arm, often came to pass because Japanese girls knew that, shall we say, frequenting an American serviceman was the best way to get reliable access to food. The Korean War brought some relief, in the form of massive procurement deals whereby Japanese factories supplied UN troops with non-military essentials, but it did not bring total recovery. The most optimistic projections for Japan's future put Japan on a path to becoming a mid-rank neutral power with limited regional influence, similar to, say, Sweden or Switzerland in Europe. Asia's future would be dominated not by Japan, but by the United States, the Soviet Union, and China. Yet, after the end of the occupation, a core of Japanese leaders, committed to Okitasaburo's ideas, began working together to realize his vision and make Japan a great power once again, this time as an economically liberal democratic state. They were led by an ambitious prime minister and ex-diplomat named Yoshida Shigeru. Shigeru was born in 1878, just ten years after the Meiji Restoration, as the son of a geisha, he was adopted by a more wealthy and prestigious family, which did not have a son to lead it and needed one, and was given a first-rate education, and eventually started a career at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Yoshida was a pro-US, pro-British, moderate conservative, closely allied with Japan's industrial leadership. He objected strongly to Japan's adventures both in China and in the Pacific, and was eventually arrested in 1944 and thrown in prison, for forming an anti-war faction inside the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. In a certain sense, though, being imprisoned was a favor for him, as that very imprisonment made him acceptable to the Allied government as a politician, even though, strictly speaking, since he was fairly high up in the pre-war leadership of the bureaucracy, he probably was a good candidate for being purged. Instead, Yoshida was not purged, and in fact became Prime Minister twice over the course of the occupation, once from 1946 to 1947, and again from 1948 to 1954. 
Yoshida and his clique, most notably a pair of ex-bureaucrats named Ikeda Hayato and Sato Eisaku, who were known as his honor students for their devotion to his ideas, began working as soon as the occupation ended to put their vision into place by gaining control of the government. Sato was a consummate politician and was more or less well-liked by everyone he met. Ikeda, on the other hand, was famously a bit of an ass. In fact, early in the 1950s, he was actually forced out of government for a brief while, forced and forced to resign his post as Minister of International Trade, after remarking to a diet man who accused Ikeda of having a too-pro-big-business policy stance that, quote, it makes no difference to me if five or ten small businessmen are forced to commit suicide. Unsurprisingly, Ikeda's callousness did not win him a lot of friends, and Yoshida was forced to intervene and use his own political skills to bring Ikeda back into the government, presumably then giving him a stern talking to about the importance of circumspection. Yoshida Yoshida and his allies did have a few advantages that were not readily apparent to outside observers. First, Japan's pre-war bureaucracy remained more or less intact during and after the occupation. In contrast to Nazi Germany, where the government had essentially collapsed after Hitler's suicide, the government of Imperial Japan remained functioning throughout the surrender. The Allies, realizing the difficulties involved of replacing the entire Japanese government, removed only the high leadership and the more militant members of the bureaucracy, and left the rest of the structure more or less intact, utilizing it as a method to govern the country during the occupation. This meant that A, the bureaucracy remained a vital source of technical expertise from before the war, and that B, as a result of the removal of its more militant members, the bureaucracy had more or less drifted entirely into Yoshida's camp. In other words, the post-war bureaucracy was very much willing to follow Yoshida's line. Second, as we discussed last week, Article 9 prohibited the creation of an active Japanese military allowing Yoshida and his allies to concentrate what limited wealth Japan had purely on economic matters. Militaries are extremely expensive and don't produce any wealth themselves. Article 9 meant that Japan did not have to worry about funding a large military, and even after the Japan Self-Defense Forces were formed, their size was always severely restricted. In fact, up until the 1990s, the unwritten rule of the Japanese government, following the lead set by Yoshida, was never to spend more than 1% of the country's GDP on military affairs. Third, the military alliance with the United States, which had essentially been forced on Japan as a precondition for ending the occupation, turned out to be extremely advantageous for Yoshida and his allies. Yoshida could point to Article 9 as a reason for the treaty to be an unequal one. The United States would protect Japan from external threats, mostly the Soviets, but Japan, in a similar situation, was under no obligation to come to the aid of the United States. The small size and technical limitations of the Japanese military, which was prohibited from holding offensive weaponry like bombers or aircraft carriers, meant that Japanese aid wouldn't have been of much use anyway. As a result, Japan was essentially able to outsource its defense to the U.S. for free, guaranteeing its own safety for a minimal cost. Yoshida, shrewd diplomat that he was, would encourage the maintenance of this system with the following scheme. He would obtain details of when American representatives were planning to visit Tokyo, and would let slip the date in front of socialist anti-war opposition leaders, 
who had then arranged massive protests against the U.S.-Japan security arrangement and rearmament when the Americans arrived. Yoshida would then point to the demonstrations and remark that in such a political climate, he was very sorry, but he could not do more to help his gracious American allies on security matters. In fairness, he wasn't really lying. The anti-war groundswell was a very real thing, as evidenced by the massive riots in Tokyo in 1960, when the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty was renewed and updated. The Socialists staged several days of protests, and U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower canceled his visit to Japan after the car of the U.S. Secretary of Defense, Thomas Gates Sr., was attacked by protesters and almost tipped over in the streets of Tokyo. The treaty barely passed the Diet. Leftist Diet members actually stormed the session where the vote was being taken and nearly managed to prevent its completion via physical force. The Speaker of the Diet had to be carried to the podium while protected on every side by pro-treaty Diet men who got in fistfights with the anti-treaty crowd. Meanwhile, right-wing groups and Yakuza actually fought the demonstrators outside the Diet to prevent disruption of the session. The Prime Minister at the time, Kishinobusuke, who was more militant in his outlook than Yoshida and objected to the economic focus of the Yoshida Doctrine, was forced to resign as part of the fallout from the massive riots. Finally, Yoshida, Okita, and their allies had many influential contacts in the major Japanese business conglomerates, meaning that they were in a position to broker an alliance between the government and the private sector. After the end of the occupation, the first order of business was to build a political coalition to enact the Yoshida program. Once the ban on political parties was lifted, there was an explosive proliferation of tiny splinter parties representing a broad spectrum of views. In particular, the socially conservative, pro-business, anti-rearmament crowd was split between two parties, the Liberal and Democratic parties. As a side note, the name Liberal Party might strike Americans as a little strange. Keep in mind that it refers to liberal in the European sense, as an economic liberal or anti-government interference, not liberal in the American sense, which would be referred to more as progressive. Yoshida had been a member of both parties and had contacts in both. He was able to use them to convince the head of the Democratic Party, Hatoyama Ichiro, that a merger between the two parties was necessary in order to prevent the wildly popular Japan Socialist Party, or Shakaito, from controlling the government. Once the merger took place in November 1955, Yoshida and his allies were able to dominate the leadership of that party, with Okita Saburo acting as its economic guru. In fairness, Hatoyama Ichiro did get a prime ministership out of it, so I suppose you could say he did all right out of the deal. By the way, Hatoyama Ichiro also founded a political dynasty that is continued to this day by Hatoyama Yukio, his grandson, who was prime minister back in 2009. The newly formed party was called the Liberal Democratic Party, or Jiuminshito, though it is generally referred to in regular discourse by shorter acronyms, LDP in English or Jiminto in Japanese. When it was formed, it immediately became big enough to dominate the Diet and began enacting Yoshida's policies. The following election, the Liberal Democratic Party took control of the Diet, and it would never relinquish that control until 1993. First and foremost, the new LDP used its influence in the bureaucracy to begin a policy of what could be called controlled capitalism. In essence, Yoshida's plan was to set up small cartels and a handful of businesses in sectors that were deemed to be of strategic value, strategic in the economic, not the military sense. 
these cartels would then be supported with favorable regulation. Strategic industries would be anything that was either exportable, such as electronics or automobiles, or that was used to create export products, the best example probably being steel. The steel industry was very heavily subsidized and supported, even though it was at best barely profitable. What do I mean by support? First of all, favorable enforcement of legislation was a huge part of it. Bureaucrats would conveniently ignore Japan's anti-monopoly laws and anti-cartel legislation when it came to the favored industries. Money also factored into the equation. The government would subsidize research into new technology and technological improvements by funding joint research ventures between competitors in a given field. The cartels themselves took the form of both geographic cartels, for example, making a specific prefecture Matsushita territory or Mitsubishi territory, where the only TVs you could buy were made by Matsushita, and the only cars you could buy were made by Mitsubishi, as well as price fixing, whereby competitors agreed not to undercut each other's prices. Why would Yoshida do this? If you've grown up in the United States, which I'm guessing most of you have, you've grown up with the doctrine of free trade as the best economic system. All the time, we hear rhetoric about how bad government intervention into economics is. While other Western countries don't have as stringent of a tradition against government involvement in economics, they do have one. So why would this be a good idea? Well, here's the thing. Free market capitalism can be an excellent way to foster innovation through competition, by forcing companies to build a better product in order to capture market share, and its decentralized nature can make it more efficient at allocating resources. However, in some cases, the free market can be very wasteful. The best example is probably the idea of a price war, where businesses drive themselves bankrupt trying to undercut each other's prices. In addition, there's no guarantee that innovation will occur in areas conducive to a concerted national economic strategy. It's not going to help you very much if your people get very good at making cars if you're trying to build an economy around, say, information technology. The Yoshida Okita model was designed to ameliorate these weaknesses by having multiple firms, but not so many that they couldn't be guided to a certain extent, allowing for some competition, but not so much that it would go out of control and start a price war. The best way to think of it is as a sort of middle ground between the free market capitalism of the U.S. and the state-controlled economy of the Soviet Union, attempting to combine the advantages of both. The system does have one big problem. It's very anti-consumer. Consumers lose the ability to shop for a better price, and are essentially forced to subsidize the major cartels. So why put up with this? Well, Japanese corporate culture was designed in such a way as to share the wealth accumulated in this manner with employees. Good pensions, lifetime employment, good benefits, guaranteed promotions, all these things are part of the program. This kind of good treatment meant that employees tended not to begrudge their employers too much success. There were those who dissented against the system, but they couldn't outmatch the political and economic power of Yoshida's new block. The system took a while to find its footing, especially since Yoshida briefly lost control of the LDP to Kishinobusuke, head of a more militant pro-armament faction of the party, in 1958. However, like I mentioned earlier, the treaty revision riots in 1960 forced Kishi out of power. Yoshida, who is getting on in years at this point, was able to maneuver his younger protege, Ikeda Hayato, into the prime ministership. Yoshida would die seven years later, in 1967. Incidentally, right before he died, he also scandalized parts of the country by being baptized and admitting to being a closet Roman Catholic his entire life. 
Back in the 1930s, apparently, he had become a Catholic after being stationed in Italy for a few years. Ikeda, once in power, began ramping up Yoshida's program to an even greater extent. Upon taking the office of Prime Minister, he reached out to fellow politicians and Japanese people at large with a program of economic growth. He used his own political clout, the clout of the LDP, and that of Yoshida himself, to push what he called the Income Doubling Plan. The goal of the plan was to invest the government's power into economic growth to such an extent that the average household income in Japan would double from 1960 to 1970. The program was an even greater success than anyone predicted. In fact, the average household income doubled not by 1970, but by 1967. The projected per-year GDP growth rate when the plan was formulated was around 8%. It turned out to be closer to 11 Ikeda tragically didn't live to see it. He became extremely ill in 1964 and was forced to retire, dying the following year. The leadership of the LDP, which by this point was pretty much embedded in power, was passed to Sato Esaku. Under Sato's leadership, Japan passed yet another economic milestone. Its industrial production recovered to the point that it could begin exporting in large quantities to other countries once more. The prime target for exports under Sato was the United States, and here yet another of Japan's key advantages became clear. The Japanese could get away with pretty much anything in the face of a tolerant United States. I don't want to get into this too much because it involves some pretty Byzantine economics, but the short version is that the guaranteed economic base provided to Japanese businesses by the cartel system in Japan enabled them to sell their products at a loss in the U.S., High Japanese prices subsidize the low ones in the U.S. This is known as economic dumping, and it's very illegal in the U.S. and according to the rules of the World Trade Organization. The Japanese were also able to make a killing because the American government let them get away with fixing the value of their currency. The Japanese were, by treaty, allowed to keep the value of the yen very low, around 360 yen to one dollar. This made Japanese products much cheaper. We'll get into this more in a later episode. The short version is that the Japanese were taking advantage of the Cold War system to, in essence, cheat in economic terms, and the United States needed an ally in Asia more than it needed fair competition with Japan and was prepared to allow them to do it. Keeping Japan strong as a Cold War ally was seen as more valuable than the potential economic damage that Japan could inflict to the U.S. economy. Japanese entry into the American market devastated several industries. The major American TV producers, like Zenith, were more or less wiped out, and the American auto industry began the slow death spiral that it's only now, maybe, sort of, kind of, starting to recover from. Sato Esaku kept Ikeda and Yoshida's system intact. He continued prior economic policies, and solidified the use of Article 9 as a shield against international involvement by articulating a series of what he called peace principles. We don't need to get into these too much, but essentially they were reaffirming the idea that Japan would not involve itself in war, it wouldn't try to do things like militarize its space program, which was something that was being talked about in both the Soviet Union and the U.S., and it would stay away from production of nuclear weapons. Sato's anti-nuclear policy, in particular, earned him a Nobel Peace Prize in 1972. By the beginning of the 1970s, Japan's recovery was complete. Yoshida's strategy had worked. But what was the cost? Japan had become an American dependency in terms of its foreign policy, could it really catch up to where it had been? Could it really be a great power again without having its independence in that realm? Later in life, Yoshida expressed some regret on that score, 
stating that his strategy had been meant only to be temporary while Japan got back on its feet before it could normalize and act like a regular country again, but it was too late. The course was fixed, success had made it embedded, and, convinced that they should not try and fix what was clearly not broken, the Japanese leadership made the Yoshida strategy the guiding principle of foreign, political, and economic policy in Japan. Yoshida's strategy would form the backbone of Japanese thinking until the 1990s. That's all for this week. For more details on this week's episode or any other episode, visit the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week.